The Athletic. Hello, welcome to the All Seen and Chapman pod on The Athletic, uh, as well as David today. I'm joined by The Athletic's Adam Crafton and one of our Everton writers, Patrick Boylan. We'll talk Everton, of course, plus David has an update of United's pursuit of Jadon Sancho and also why the injury to Jack Grealish could change the way clubs let players and staff play fancy Premier League. Uh, don't forget, until February the 25th, new subscribers can get half-price annual subscription to The Athletic so that works out at less than £1 a week for an entire year. Just go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. If you are a subscriber, you'll be able to read David's column in full each week. David, you've got an update this week on Manchester. Oh, good. Haven't done this for at least two weeks. Manchester United and Jaden Sancho. Sancho's back on the pod, yeah. Our latest information is that Manchester United have essentially paused their pursuit of Jaden Sancho for now. There's been a bit of a change in dynamic and and that largely relates to the continued rise of Mason Greenwood, who's now into his second sort of full season in the Manchester United setup. He's been rewarded with a contract extension just last week. And I think that makes the need for Sancho slightly less pressing. Now, he can Greenwood play in multiple positions and therefore I don't think Sancho's going to be ruled out, especially if Manchester United in in this economic climate could cut a much better deal for Sancho next summer than they could last summer. He'll obviously be a year closer to the end of his contract, which expires in 2023. I think in normal circumstances, there would have been a good chance of that happening this summer. I think the expectation from his end is that he will leave Dortmund in this transfer window and many of us did expect it to happen this time round but yeah my latest information is that they've slightly called their interest in him I think their priorities will be other positions Manchester United they did bring in two young wingers of course not at Sancho's level over the last year in Pellistri and Diallo Diallo now with them Pellistri being loaned out and I think or from people I speak to, the the sort of focus is more around the striker position and or centre-back. Now, if at the time they decide to go for, let's just say, for example, the centre-back at great expense, then, especially in this COVID-affected market, they then may look to go for a developing striker in the other position. Or when the time comes, they say, no, it's all on a striker, Erling Haaland or someone they then may turn around and look for a more developing player in the centre-back position. And there may be other positions as well. They may go for Sancho ultimately. What I don't think United will do, will bring in three players for 70, 90 million. Yes, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer said over the weekend that he feels backed by the ownership in the transfer market. And that inevitably is going to lead to a big deal. But I don't think there are going to be an array of big deals. Um, And so they might have to be creative with, with what they do. But certainly they're working on plans for the summer. And right now, that doesn't sort of focus intensively on Jadon Sancho. They need a modern-day Paul Warhurst. That's mm-hmm. what they need if they're looking, <laughs> if they're looking for a striker and a centre-half. The thing is, Adam, as well, I, I mean, I know they've, they've signed these these two young wingers that, that David mentioned. They've, they've also got a lot of under-23 players that they are very excited about, particularly in attacking roles. Um, I, I mean, they've got a young centre-half that they're very excited about in Ted and Mengi, who we've spoken about on the pod before. But all of a sudden, their under-23 offering 
is within the club is is making them very excited and has probably made them reassess the positions they need to actually buy. Yeah, and there's the forward Hugill as well, um, who's done well yeah. in the past few weeks. But Oli Gunasolsky is trying to turn a team from being second, third into being the best in England and Europe. And that means that they're going to have to spend some money and they need, you know, I think people who have watched United closely this season feel that they need a fast centre-half. They need a midfielder who can both win the ball and pass the ball rather than one who does one or the other, which is what a lot of the ones that they do have seem to be. They need a striker to spare us um, Anthony Martial playing too much more in the number nine position. I think that right wing position was very much a priority last summer, but I think it just feels like other flaws have exposed themselves over the course of this season that have maybe overtaken it to a certain extent. So if you're going to go and spend 70 million on a position, I wouldn't put that as the absolute number one priority at the moment. And, you know, they've also got Dan James doing well. You've got Diallo, you've got Greenwood. Um, I suppose the only thing is there's been quite a lot of big games this season where it's looked like an awkward fit in that right wing position. You had Pogba playing there, I think, against Liverpool. You've had Rashford, who prefers to be on the left, on the right in certain games. So I can understand why why they want someone in that position, but it wouldn't, to me, be the you know one, number one, two or three priority this summer. I think it was, it was quite interesting. I sat in on Everton's general meeting in January and there was a presentation about the summer window and the impact of covid on the market, not not necessarily the Premier League market, which held up pretty well with regards to spending, but I think it's down 40%, 50% in Bundesliga and La Liga. And they're obviously key selling markets for Premier League clubs. So I do wonder if there comes a time where you almost need to reassess priorities and you almost tailor your strategy in, in the in the market with regards to incomings around what, what's happening elsewhere. Uh, and then maybe that's where priorities and kind of prioritising certain positions comes to the comes to the fore. I mean, Manchester United have got Rashford and uh, Martial, both who are, in my opinion, slightly better from the side with a bit more space. Diallo looks really, really exciting. Probably should be a good signing over the coming seasons. So if you have a budget of X amount, whether it be 100 or 200 million pounds, and you you have to focus in on a number of priorities, do you pick either flank for Manchester United at the moment. I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't from from the outside looking in. And I think that's something that's going to more or less ring true for just about every football club as a strategy this summer. Everton themselves will, will need to do that. They'll need to prioritise two, three key positions and maybe make signings there as opposed to what we saw in the past, which was slightly kind of less discriminate spending. So um, I, I think I think we need to bear in mind that clubs are going to have to prioritise and that might mean that the shopping list is slightly smaller than it would have been in, in previous windows. OK, let's move on. We will uh, talk Jack Grealish and Fancy Premier League a little bit later, but let's move on to Everton next and their win at Anfield at the weekend. <laughs> Well, the biggest story from the weekend was Everton finally winning at Anfield. I suppose, Paddy, the win means you have to do a lot more work than if it had just been uh, another defeat or a draw. Yeah, I mean, it's only a, a story, really, isn't it? If Everton go to Anfield and win, <laughs> given how long it's been since they actually managed to achieve that feat. We've, um, I think, grown a little bit tired of hearing that 1999 date. And I think Kevin Campbell, Everton's goal scorer in that last win, 
must have grown equally tired of telling the story every single year. Kind of, is this the year that Everton end at Anfield? Who do? But it's finally over. It means that we kind of, we have to snap at it. We have to kind of go and tell that story, how it finally came about. Um, and I, I guess all you can hope is that at some point down the line, that's no longer as big a story <laughs> from an Everton perspective, but that the inside story of Everton's win is no longer as much of a thing because they do it more regularly. So uh, when you wrote the inside story of, of of Everton's win, what stood out to you about the build-up to it that maybe helped them? One of the most interesting things for me was just that calm assurance from Carlo Ancelotti, while others quite rightly arousing people in the dressing room, people like Duncan Ferguson, the, the assistant manager. Ancelotti is that kind of sedate figure of calm and he's... He's, he's, he's making sure that he's getting across those kind of quite intricate tactical messages. Every week for pretty much the last month now, the team sheet has come out an hour before the game and people like myself have been kind of scratching our heads as to what Everton were actually going to do, such as the nature of the versatility in the squad at this moment in time. But when you saw what he was doing and effectively this idea of moving towards a man-marking system on certain Liverpool players... Seamus Coleman tracking the run of Andy Robertson, for example, which I thought was a really smart move. You see just how quickly Ancelotti adapts, not only from game to game, but also in-game. It's been quite a while, if we're being honest, since Everton have had a manager that's able to do something like that. And then obviously, great story with the scenes in the dressing room afterwards as well. What did make me chuckle, I have to be honest, is the fact that he had his celebration, Ancelotti, and then he went home to his to his house on the coast, on the Sefton coast in Crosby, and had a really quiet night with his family. It was almost as though everybody else, it's carnage for everybody else, everybody else would be made up, but for me, this is just any normal day. And actually, it's just three points, and I thought that summed it all up uh, pretty well, to be honest. Do you think, you, you talk about his tactical flexibility, and you talk about how he changes things in games. Do you think, therefore, there is a greater, I'll bring Adam in on this as well, a greater understanding from Everton fans that for as well that they are doing, they are still, to, to use the horrible word, in transition a little bit. And therefore, you will get a Fulham at home performance mixed in with a winner Anfield performance. Yeah, I think so. We all know that Ancelotti does like to chop and change. He's not dogmatic. He, he'll, he'll go the other way. He'll be very pragmatic. And what that means sometimes is that because the team is changing so much week to week, it's almost hard to drum up a level of consistency. And when things go wrong, the inevitable question is, what is actually the identity of this football club? But what I'd do is I'd flip that on its head. And what I've seen recently, certainly in the last 10 years at Anfield, managers like Marco Silva and Roberto Martinez going to Liverpool and choosing to set up in their own way, not making any compromise whatsoever and playing, let's be honest, these, these kind of high lines against players like Mohamed Salah, Sadio Mane, various other kind of key Liverpool players and just getting absolutely rinsed in behind. And for Everton fans to know that somebody is going to be flexible and is going to almost look to negate the weaknesses of, the, of this side, but also negate the strengths of the other team, I think is, is very, very important. And and yeah, he's he's obviously he's he's found a way of in the big games this season negating and getting stuff out of games that you probably wouldn't have expected Everton to do. What I would say is the next step for this Everton side, if they're going to go from kind of sixth, seventh, eighth in the table, and being so good away from home, depriving opposition sides of space and being pretty reactive, if we're being honest, is 
when they change and they go more on the front foot, they need to learn how to dominate better. They need to have more players in the midfield who can, can pass a ball, manipulate possession. I still think we see it as a work in progress, but because there's a lot of happiness with how Ancelotti has been so far, a lot of uh, praise for his for, for his start so far um, among the fan base, I think they are prepared to give him a little bit more time than they would do with others. And that means that these teething problems, they don't get swept under the table, but people accept them a little bit more than they would have done so before. That identity balance, I always find really interesting, Adam. I was talking to someone in Rugby Union about Harlequins and Phil Gustard had come in to be the the Quinn's head coach and he's, he's now left. They were sort of quite critical of someone coming in and going, this is the identity that I believe in and this is how we're going to play without necessarily respecting the identity of a club that's been around there, according to the players, that's been around there for, for decades or, or a century or whatever. And Ancelotti seems to have that perfect balance at the moment of things will be done his way, but he respects the history and the identity of the club. Yeah, and I think if you go through Ancelotti's career, you can't really like pinpoint this is the way an Ancelotti team plays. We know Ancelotti teams tend to win things, and that's almost the identity that, you know, they'll play some decent football, they'll get stuck in when they need to, but they're quite civil servanty in that they're able to adapt to whatever he thinks is the best way <laughs> to, to fit the system of whoever's the minister of the minister at the time. And that's, I think that's probably the most effective way of managing football clubs. You know, unless you're Pep Guardiola or, Mar- or Marcelo Bielsa, that's the most effective way of working. I mean, to go on, on Paddy's point, I thought Everton were good on Saturday. I thought there was two key things. One was that they scored the first goal. And the second is, it's the easiest fixture in English football at the moment. Anfield away and it's ridiculous to say it they've lost sight of, of themselves completely um, and that's I don't mean that to play down Everton's you know and the magnitude of what that does to the confidence and things like that because you know you, you say it's it's nearly March FA Cup quarterfinal still in the race for the top four I think there's a long way to go for this Ancelotti Everton team in, in terms of developing a style developing a, a level of confidence that means they can as Paddy says not just survive those games and ride out those games but dominate those games but what they've got this year because of how weird this Premier League is they've got a chance to get in the Champions League and if you get in the Champions League you can sign better players and I know they've already signed some players like James Rodriguez but you know you look at him and he's not someone who was his star wasn't rising when they signed him what they have the opportunity this summer if they get into that fourth space is we can not only sign those players who are maybe coming to the end, who need, a, who need an opportunity, but we can actually really then go and attract young, hungry players, you know, players like Dominic Calvert-Lewin, Richarlison on a broader basis. And I think that's what the opportunity is now for Everton. Adam talking about the recruitment there. I'd really like to put a question to Paddy about what is going on with Marcel Brands. You've written about it. He's a very highly respected technical director within football. His contract is coming towards an end at Everton. We still don't have any definitive answer on what's happening. It seems like the deal is close, but not over the line. There's a lot of speculation around Everton about how much power he actually has because of the board, because of... um, Farhad Mashiri, the sort of power at the top level compared to the power on the football side. We know he has a great relationship with Carlo Ancelotti. We know that he would be sought after if he wasn't at Everton. So what is going to happen? As you've alluded to there, David, a contract now has been put in front of Marcel Brands. 
that came shortly after the new year. And up to that point, there had been a lot of speculation over Brand's future. He's out of contract at the end of the season. There were a few bitty rumours linking him with Manchester United, among among others. For Brands, all he's wanted is some kind of clarity over his future. He wanted that offer to be forthcoming. And while Everton were relaxed about the situation because of that, it was very much then a, a question of putting terms in front of him. I think from the point at which they did that, as long as the terms weren't risable, he was always likely to be of a mind to extend his stay at Goodison Park. You look at his track record, certainly the amount of time he stuck at PSV Eindhoven and the work he did there. For him, it's not about a two or three year project. It's very much five, six, seven, ten years building a legacy And I also think we we talk about recruitment. There's a bit of a simplification with regards to brands because the director of football role at Everton is not purely about signing players and moving others out. For brands, it's about reforming the academy. Uh, It's also about financially making sure the club is on an even keel. These are really important issues. I I think as, as Adam's mentioned there, you can't just sign players that are 29 and 30 and on the way down from a Real Madrid or Barcelona. There has to be something the other way as well, people pushing up. The other way, a lot of Everton's best signings have been Calvert-Lewin, Mason Holgate. For a relative pittance in the modern market, it's important that Brands is, as we believe, soon likely to extend his stay. And then I think it's very much a case, given what we've spoken about with regards to what needs to happen next, developing more of an identity on the pitch. Very important that they get to work on the summer now because... There's a, a window of opportunity this season, but we don't know if that same window of opportunity will be there next, given the kind of relative constraints of, of COVID and, and what that's meant for this year. Are they excited about the new stadium? Uh, or is there a sense of, because we've seen new stadia in the past, then become a bit of a burden for a club in the early years that they moved there. I'm not saying, not necessarily just talking about on the field and getting used to it. I'm talking about financially as well. And all of a sudden, it it sort of affects on-field plans because they're financing this, this new stadium. Whilst it's exciting and it looks great, and if they get it right, that's brilliant. In the short term, are there any concerns it might cause them a bit of pain? I think they are excited to an extent, and they'll be even more excited when that is officially signed off from kind of local government and also national government. But I think as well as excitement, it's also about the necessity of it for Everton Football Club and the model moving forward. Obviously, Farhad Mashiri is a very wealthy man. He's a billionaire. But to suggest that he can just continue to plough funds in unrelented at Everton Football Club is to not really understand the situation. Obviously, they've lost a lot of money now in successive sets of accounts, 100 millions of pounds and... I think the stadium is seen not as the one-stop shop with regards to a fix. It's not the quick fix, but it's something that can help the club be more sustainable in the future. So I think it's excitement, but there's also a realism. It's like, this has to happen. It's kind of important, not only for the short-term and mid-term security of the club, but long-term too. 
it, it, it's, it's a necessity and, and that's it. Paddy, can I pick up on one of your points about recruitment? Is Jared Branthwaite the kind of archetypal signing that Everton are going to look to go to obviously supplement the bigger star name players? Uh, I've seen him linked with a move already away from Everton because uh, he's so highly rated. He's out on loan, of course. Uh, and also, Adam, I, I don't know if you have, have any wider views on whether clubs like Everton are really now scouring the domestic market for a Branthwaite type signing because of the uh, new regulations that have come in around the post-Brexit rules. On Branthwaite, I think that's where Brands really comes into his own. That That's the archetypal Marcel Brands signing. I don't actually think when you look at Alan or James Rodriguez, they're not necessarily the players that he himself would be shortlisting if he was given sole 100% power over Everton transfers and I also think that if Carlo Ancelotti hadn't been at Everton it would have been much harder for Everton to even attract Alan and, and James in the first place given the position in the league table last season which was which was 12th. What Brands likes to do and we saw this at PSV is improve the academy but also find the next young thing the, the players that might not necessarily be first team players in the short term but in two, three seasons can really push on and give the manager new options. Uh, I think that that's vitally important. He's already done it a few times, but Ancelotti's focus is very much going to be on success in the next two, three seasons, improving Everton, getting them into Europe, and then hopefully pushing them on beyond that winning silverware. Brands, I signed Branthwaite, his recruitment structure unearthed, Niels and Kunku, who was playing in Marseille B, had never played a competitive match for for Marseille's first team. And both of those players have really impressed when they were given the opportunity. That's where I think you see the value of somebody like Marcel Brands more than ever. So I still still expect that there to be a dual-pronged approach. It's not always easy to iron out some of the creases, given that you've got slightly competing forces. There's that focus on pushing on in the very short term on the pitch, but there's also safeguarding the long-term future of the club. That is a little bit of a fault line, but they've got figures in place. If you if they allow brands to focus more in that kind of unearthing talent side of things, and he then helps Ancelotti identifying targets for the first team. I think that's the, the best way forward for Everton in the current structure. And that's what means that they're able to have a Branthwaite while also signing... James Rodriguez. Everton have always been good, haven't they, at recruiting young, smart talent from the lower divisions. You know, you look at Mason Holgate and Dominic Calvert-Lewin and, you know, going back to John Stones a few years ago as well. So I think that's something that Everton have always been across. And I think what's good is that it finally seems under the Mashiri ownership that there seems to be a respect for the traditions of the club while also having a healthy ambition to move the club forwards. And I think maybe in those first couple of years, it was all a bit like we want to get there and we want to get there at 1 million miles per hour and nothing's going to stand in our way. And I think now they're just pacing it a bit a bit more smartly. What is interesting is I think that, am I right in thinking the new stadium would be due to open 24-25? They're talking about once planning permission is granted and hopefully that'll be in the next few weeks or certainly in the next few months. It will be 150 weeks as a rough estimate for the construction so that's 24 25 as you as you point out working on that basis i think what's interesting is we have these proposed champions league changes that would come in in 2024 
And you know, if you speak to people in the Premier League at the moment, the, their big concern is can they make what they consider at the moment to be a big six into a big eight or a big nine by the time those Champions League changes come around. And I think, you know, you look at teams such as Everton, Leeds, maybe, Wolves, Aston Villa, Leicester, and I, I, and, and you look at the drop-off from teams such as Arsenal and Tottenham. West Ham. West Ham, of course. Just to stop any abuse coming your way from West Ham fans. And then you're probably done. Then you're all right. You've, you've covered yourself. There's 10 teams that have the potential in terms of infrastructure and budget and, and that kind of thing to, to be around those, those 10 places in whichever order they are for the next few years. And, and that's important for the Premier League because it helps them to push back against this idea that you're always going to have the same teams going into the Champions League. So Everton have to play a big part of that. But if they're then thinking on the other side, we need to pay for this stadium, I wonder how much that could in time limit their ambitions. And I know everyone always says, no, no, it'll be a land of opportunity. That's what Tottenham said. That's what West Ham said. That's what Arsenal said. It always works out a bit harder than that. That would just be the concern. But that's not really Everton's fault. That's just the way football is progressing at this moment in time. That's a really interesting point on the Champions League going forward and what the Premier League might might want. Do you think, and I'm probably asking you to guess here, for their argument, for their purpose going forward, the Premier League would quite like Leicester and West Ham to finish in the top four this season, if possible, or Everton? I think there are people at the Premier League who would find it extremely funny if, you know, after a year in which you've had things such as Project Big Picture, threats of breakaways and Super Leagues and all that kind of thing, if you then get Leicester, West Ham or Everton, you know, two of those teams going into the top four, I think there are people across English football that would find that very funny because you have six teams who have declared themselves the rulers of English football based and they have grounds in terms of you know, the, the interest that they drive, the revenue that they drive, saying that they want a bigger slice of that. But then it's a bit like, OK, we'll go and produce a team that's capable of backing up what you say. And at the moment, Tottenham aren't doing that. Arsenal certainly aren't doing that. Liverpool aren't doing that this season. Chelsea are barely doing it. And Manchester United are sort of doing it. So, you know, I, I think that's why this season is such an interesting possibility because if they if you get a Leicester or an Everton or West Ham going into those places it just solidifies their voice at the table that little bit more it means that you know Karen Brady for example her voice at that table becomes a little bit more important because she then starts going to meetings at the European Clubs Association and things like that so I, I think I'm wary of, you know, we've seen years, haven't we, where Everton went into the Champions League and it didn't work out in 2005 and Leicester went in and it sort of dropped out since then. But this season is an interesting one for that reason. Adam, are these clubs actually overtaking the likes of Tottenham and Arsenal on a permanent basis? And if so, how on earth have those so-called bigger clubs allowed the likes of Everton, West Ham to zoom past them? And uh, to the point where it's now looking like it's becoming quite established. My sort of lighthearted answer to this is like, no matter how rich men are, men will always mess up at some point. And I think that's what's happened. You know, all the cards were stacked in the favour of those six clubs. They had the most money, they had the best players, they had the best coaches, and they've still found a way to mess it up. I think on, on that level, that's, that's what's happened. 
on a, on on the other hand, I don't think it's a permanent shift, a permanent shift because they still have these revenues and they still have the infrastructure and they still have the best academies and they still have the broader scouting networks. So, you know, are we to expect for the next 10 years that Leicester will on average finish higher than Arsenal and Tottenham? I would be amazed because the, the revenues and the budgets and the infrastructure say that shouldn't happen. If they do, it's of huge credit to a Leicester um, or a Leeds because it will mean they are doing their job so much better. Arsenal, I think, is the really interesting one at the moment because, you know, we're looking at really chronic underperformance over several years. And we're now seeing a level of patience and tolerance being afforded to a head coach that is in many ways to be admired, but in other ways is completely unparalleled for one of those big six clubs that I can't remember another case where you've had a team that has shown, you know, so, so, so little where so much patience and tolerance and indulgence has been shown to the head coach. And, you know, I hope in time that that's proven to be a really good decision, but let's see where that goes. Do Everton feel like they have a voice, Patrick? I think they do. And they're not normally a club that kind of throws the pots and pans out. They don't stomp around and they certainly don't kind of aggressively kind of look to kind of encircle themselves and, and kind of intertwine themselves with the media. That's not the way they've ever worked, really, Everton Football Club. I think what they have done is they've, they've gone about their business quietly. They've been forceful in their objections in private, in, in Premier League meetings, particularly through Denise Barrett-Baxendale, the CEO of the club. Very outspoken in those meetings, we believe, with regards to Project Big Picture in particular, but also helping with Project Restart and being one of the the, the main uh, drivers behind, catalysts behind that. So I think they do feel as though they have a voice, but I think influence, and Adam's kind of mentioned this a little bit, is influence is very much tied to success and stature. And I think if Everton are going to have that voice long-term, then they need to back it up with league positions, tangible success on the pitch. Um, going back to those clubs you mentioned there, the, the kind of the, the supposed big six. I think what they what they've done over the years means that they do have a seat at the table, and they are able to because of their infrastructure and their success. They they are able to dictate, and there's gravitas there. Everton now have Carlo Ancelotti, and their aim very much through Mashiri's funds, the new stadium, Carlo Ancelotti, is to ensure that the conditions are in place. Don't have more of a discussion an increasingly large discussion and increasingly large piece of the pie as we continue down the road. So I agree with Adam. I think it's very much, I think it, it's the infrastructure of the club that shows how a side is going to do over five, 10 year period. And you may have these anomalies in the short term if a, a Tottenham or an Arsenal makes bad decisions and a Leicester or an Everton makes very good decisions. What Everton are banking on, and I think Leicester too, is that what they're able to do is to breach the gap and narrow it because of success on the pitch and to do so in the short term. And then commercially they catch up, then they have a, a bigger piece of the pie and they have a have more of a say at, at meetings, but it's very much a work in progress, I think, at, the, at this stage in time. Of all of these clubs, if West Ham make the Champions League, they're offering decent bonuses to their players? Well, for a start, I think West Ham players will just be absolutely delighted with how things going from a football perspective and every time I speak to people there about 
what money's on offer, they say uh, these guys are only in it for the uh, sporting success. But we know there's another side to this as well. And yes, we reveal in my Monday column that West Ham's collective bonuses start from a ninth place finish. They do not get anything as a collective group between 10th and 20th. But from ninth, it kicks in and then it ratchets up per position. And obviously they then get into European territory. But there's an enormous leap if they were to qualify for the Champions League, finishing the top four of a figure to share between them of approaching £10 million. So it's not a bespoke Champions League bonus. It's, it's just there's a massive climb in their bonus scheme if, if they were to get there. And that might be an added sweetener incentive for them maintaining the position that they're in now, which is fourth. Paddy, I know your expertise is Everton, but can you, uh, you're the only one, I think, of us that plays uh, FPL. So can you stay with us just to, to help us through the mechanics of this? Of course, yeah. Thanks. You, just, you can try to explain that. It's, it's either that or I go and grab my son down from his homeschooling and I, I think I better leave him, leave him to do that. Because this all centres around, David, Jack Grealish getting injured at the back end of last week, but Villa players on Friday taking him out of their fantasy Premier League teams. I think it was Thursday, Friday, when some rumours started to circulate that Jack Grealish had an injury and we didn't know why that was, although we were hearing similar things. But it emerged that that came from Aston Villa players and staff whose fantasy Premier League identities are known about by some members of the public or FPL Insider, I think it's called on on Twitter. They transferred Grealish out of their team ahead of the weekend's game against Leicester. And that sort of set alight the speculation that Grealish was suffering from an injury. He indeed did miss that match and it seems that he he could be out for longer. Dean Smith said in his press conference that, you know, he's going to find the, the source of this leak, but... It appears he only needs to look closer to home or if he wants to read our column, it's all explained in there. On the same weekend, I think Leeds captain Liam Cooper transferred out Alioski from his team and uh, ahead of, and that was spotted and got tongues wagging. And indeed, Alioski did not play for the first time in about 18, 19 games. And we understand that clubs without sort of major alarm are onto this. And there is an element of concern because essentially their team news is being leaked innocently, really, by accident, by people within their own camp playing FPL. And it's even been spoken about at a board level among some clubs on what they can do about this. And I think it may be a case of telling their players and staff not to pick their own teams or just keeping everything a bit more private or just not getting involved in it at all. But now I'm going to hand over to my learned friend. What I would say is that it's quite easy now to find Premier League players on fancy. Uh, football and to look at their teams and then obviously they pick and choose players from their own club sometimes they pick themselves which is strange but that, that <laughs> sometimes they, they pick themselves as you've mentioned there you've got kind of club staff transferring players in and out and what that means is that you get a very early indication a day or two before a game in some cases as, as, as David's column rightly points out very early indications as to team news if this had been leaked to the media by kind of a member of the backroom staff um if we were getting team news leaked to us that yeah, way yeah. then obviously clubs would be up in arms and they that while i think this is slightly more innocent as david says they're still going to be very mindful of the fact that a leicester or whoever it may be 
will find out that Jack Grealish is not playing a day or two before the game. And it's effectively being confirmed by innocently by a club physio. That's probably the start, I think, of a slope that leads to players either not playing fancy Premier League at all yeah. or not being allowed to have any players from their club side in in their own team, which is, it, it's mad. It's mad. I don't know how you police that, really, to be to be honest with you. And I mean, if you don't, I mean, I'm assuming you can make a different name up and you don't have to reveal your identity with a fancy lead team, do you, by your email to the organisers? No, it, I mean, you sign up with a, with an email account. So, yeah. like, like you say, very, very difficult to police. It's the same with gambling, of course. You, you may well have a situation, well, you do have a situation where even club ambassadors, for example, aren't technically allowed to bet on their side's fortunes from, from week to week, but much, much harder in reality to police that. So you can have the guideline in place. You can tell people what they should be doing. But actually enforcing that is is another matter entirely. So person X, who is a physio at Club Y, may decide to come up with a completely new name. He might be Benjamin Button or the, the Great Gatsby mm. or whoever for, for the purposes of RFBL. And I don't <laughs> I don't necessarily think there's, there's much you can do about that. But like, yeah, like we say, clubs aren't going to allow that to stand for much longer if, in the example of Grealish, Leicester are finding out about his lack of availability of kind of 48 hours before kickoff. The way this goes, Adam, I just envisage a new role being created within clubs' analytics departments to go through opposition players' fancy football teams in the week leading up to their game. There'll be a role for this somewhere, I guarantee it. Well, I was just imagining what Marcelo Bielsa, just holding a meeting this morning, saying, <laughs> which one of you wants to do this for the next um, for the next couple of years? And it'll be all sorts of coding going on, working out every player's fancy team it's just very funny isn't it really I'm trying to sort to make a serious point about it but in essence it's just players being a bit daft and not realizing you know physios or whoever it is being a bit daft and not realizing oh my god I've, I've just given away quite a big secret <laughs> um, for two days time and it's one of it, it it's just one of one of those that I you know I imagine more I, there may be like some sort of provision where fancy the fantasy Premier League site can just make, I suppose, more pri- more private settings for mm. players who wish to be involved. Because um, I don't think they would want to lose them and lose that interest that it clearly drives because it's something that's so often spoken about annoyingly on socials and in talk shows and all that kind of thing. It's a big topic of conversation. So I don't think they'll want to lose professional players from the system so they'll just have to make provisions to make it more watertight for them let's leave it there then thank you everybody for listening thank you everybody for being on the pod Uh, I'm back on Thursday alongside Matt for the Business of Sport podcast and look out for the latest episode of David's YouTube video series Ask Ornstein that's on Wednesday bye from us The Athletic